Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of No Challenges Remaining. The Olympics are over, so we have to wait another four years to see tennis again in the Olympics. But for right now, it just happened, and I'm here to talk to you about it with the wonderfully Olympicked out Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. That's like a really good way of putting it. I'm kind of Olympicked out. Yes. I have to say. In good and bad ways. Yeah, and but I feel like like all my favorite... Not, well, it's not, I guess it's not true. I really love swimming. I like swimming more than I like track and field. Okay. Also like gymnastics more than I like track and field. So, and then obviously the tennis. So I feel like I'm kind of on a downer right now, knowing that all of these things are not going to be on my TV starting tomorrow. Yeah. I think the second week is probably definitely weaker. There are some second week things I like. Um, for example, I was watching some weightlifting today and thoroughly enjoying it, which is sort of strange. I just think it's like people doing crazy things. It's a very straightforward sport, first of all. Right. And they, make, and they make really crazy faces while they're doing it. So what's not to like? Fair enough. I mean, I will say that I like, the second week I do like because all the team events become elimination. So first week is all, you know, prelims and stuff. Yeah. So now it's starting to get into the elimination round. So that's good. I, I do like that. Yeah. That is that is good indeed. Some, some teams have already been eliminated, I guess. Um, Britain's men's soccer managed to lose in a penalty kicks on what was otherwise a wonderfully golden weekend for them. Oh. Perhaps made most golden of all. Well, there were a lot of track things, but for our perspective, I think it was one uh, Andy Murray who did a lot of the heavy lifting. Andy Murray! He's, he's, quite, he's quite the guy. He's, on, he's got his own stamp now, you know. I hear that. I hear that. And a gilded uh, post office bo- uh, post box in, uh, in Dunblane, Scotland. Wow. Yeah, apparently that's the thing. Like, for if you win a gold medal, you get a stamp, and um, you get a post office, like, mailbox that's on the street or whatever, like, uh, gets painted gold in your hometown. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I like that. More than any country that I can, well, I guess that's not probably, that's probably not true. They have a different way of recognizing winners than the U.S. does. That's a way to put it. How would you, like, yeah, we put them on Leno and make them, like, do the Today Show and stuff, stupid stuff like that. But, like, do we yeah. actually have, like, a cool way of recognizing our, like, gold medalists? They make them, like, national heroes. It's sort of, um, it's almost a more Australian take to it, based on what we were saying, you know, months ago on the show uh, about, yeah. I actually didn't even know if we talked about it on the show, but basically, like, the sort of gods in Australia are all sports people. And I feel like for this fortnight anyway, this Olympic fortnight, British people are completely embracing that. And you had things like this long jumper guy um, whose name, I think it's, I want, Rutherford, yeah, I say, Rutherford, last name. Yeah, something like that. His, uh, his Twitter follower count went from something like 6,000 to like 57,000 in like less than 24 hours when he won his gold medal. Now everyone suddenly really, he's like this long jumper is their hero. Yep. So, I don't know, it's just a different, it's cool. I mean, I think it's, you know, we could use a little bit more of it in America, but it's also sort of, um, I think it shows that they're not quite as, I don't know. We sort of take winning for granted Yes, here, I was going to say, we are spoiled. We are the spoiled are states. Spoiled. And, you know, like for us, you know, we look at somebody like Ryan Lochte, for example, and it's unfair, but we we're kind of like, meh. Like, you know, like, I mean, he had, a, by all accounts, a good Olympics, you know, and he comes away with, like, golds and silvers. and He won whatnot. six medals, I believe. Yeah, like, that's 
kind of ridiculous. Um, Maybe five, actually, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, which is, I think, more than any living Brit has won in their Olympics, like, lifetime. Because I think... That's probably true. Right? Because I thought that Steve Redgrave won four or something. That's why he's, like, the greatest British Olympian. I could totally be talking on my butt here because <laughs> I don't know British Olympic history. Um, shocking to many, I'm sure. Well, it's all been made in the last two days. So you've got to catch up on. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, but, yeah, so we do take it a little bit for granted. And then I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. You know what I mean? Like It's both. I think it's both. I think there are definitely pluses and minuses to it. I think it's great for the athletes themselves, probably. Um, because they get knighted and they get, you know, a lot, they get a lot of, a lot of state support. Um, when I was watching this weightlifting, this women's weightlifting that I was enjoying earlier today, there were stories about how these weightlifters who were not contenders in some fairness to the USOC, I guess, but they were like, one of them was like, couldn't afford to do anything about lift weights. So she like slept on a mat, like in the gym next to her weights oh, at yeah. night. And it was like sort of vaguely homeless because of her weightlifting. So I feel like that's, you don't get that. In the yeah, end. I think that that's probably the case. I mean, I wonder how much of it too. And I'm absolutely speaking ignorantly um, on this. So if people want to chime in in the comments mm-hmm. or you know tweet us back and tell me that I'm so so wrong, but just because of the way that American sports are, and and you know we do have, for example, like a very very strong you know, kind of high school sporting program, as well as, you know, college sporting program, which as far as I know, like Britain doesn't really have. Right. And that's pretty unique to America. Yeah. And so because of that, there is a little bit more um, diversity, I suspect, or sorry, the barriers are probably a little bit lower in terms of becoming an, uh, an athlete, like not necessarily yeah. Olympic level, but just like being involved in sport. Like for us, I think we maybe take it for granted. And, you know, almost everybody that I know played sports in high school on some level, on varsity levels and, yeah. you know, college and things like that. And so we do have kind of people who, yeah, are in like kind of crappy life situations who are really able to, you know, turn their lives around via, you know, sports. And that's a very kind of... I don't know if it's a very American thing as as in it's unique to America, but it is just a very American thing. Agreed. I think it's fairly unique to America. There might be some other countries that have a lot of parts of that equation that could apply, but I I think for the most part, it's a fairly American thing. Basic. I mean, you talk about a lot of like, and this can happen with soccer, I guess, most countries. You can have someone come up from a poor neighborhood and become a great soccer player. We get that a lot with uh, basketball in the U.S., but yeah. I think that's about how it goes. That makes sense. And so we also, to the bigger point, we take winning for granted because we're, you know, all we think about is being number one on the medal stand, not, you know, the individual so much. Right, right. If there's like a, you know, an interesting individual story, then, you know, you get the kind of NBC primetime piece on that person and it makes you cry and it makes you feel for them and blah, 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 and you go on. But, and and you root for them, obviously. And even if they win bronze, you're like, oh, that's fantastic. But really, the people who we celebrate are the Michael Phelpses of the world, yeah. who um, are absolutely dominant, uh, maybe to sometimes the detriment of, you know, their personal lives or their psyche or like whatever it is. So we put, yeah. put winning. Winning is winning gets a gold medal. It is number one on the on the podium for us. And to sort of the Olympic, the Olympic out. Point. We were taught. We were joking earlier in the week about how 
when we watch swimming or something, or I was watching, was I watching like a women's 15,000 meter race? Is that even a thing? 10,000 meter, 10,000 meter race. Mm -hmm. And, um, the winner, this woman like won and like broke away from the pack, this Ethiopian woman, and she won by about 20 seconds. But she was about like 30 seconds behind the world record pace. And I was like, you didn't even come close to the world record. Why should I care? <laughs> and like, you just sort of get, you know, spoiled by everything having to be higher, faster, stronger all the time. And, so I think sometimes we could all do f with a little more respect for the athletes when we're, you know, sitting there on our couch watching the gymnast saying, oh, that was a sloppy balance. But you didn't fight for that at all. Right. Like, I mean, exactly. we're not fighting for balance whatsoever when we're sitting on our couches. So. Right. No, it's uh, it's very, very true. I mean, yeah, I'll stop there because I could keep talking about it. But um, yeah. Somebody who um, I have no segue from that to Andy Murray, but. <laughs> Somebody who got people rising off their couches and cheering across Britain today was Andy Murray, who, after they won like six medals in the track on Saturday, came out and he won gold. He won a gold. Andy Murray won a gold medal today in men's singles. We're recording this on Sunday night. And then he went on to win a silver in the mixed doubles with Laura Robson. But we're going to start with the singles. Courtney, what do you think this means to Andy Murray? What do I think it means to Andy Murray? I mean, I think that... Personally you know, and sort of the big picture, Andy Murray, I guess. I think personally, I mean, I think that it's huge. I think that, that um, because on one hand, I'm kind of inclined, I guess the cynic in me or the naysayer in me is inclined to say, hold on, everybody. This is not a grand slam. Like the, the knock against the guy is not that he wasn't a good tennis player and it wasn't that he couldn't beat Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic. We've seen him do it. He has been able to do it at Masters events and, you know, and occasionally at, at slams and things like that. But, um, you know, it's about the slam and this is not a slam. And, you know, we have to take that into consideration before we completely lionize him and, um, you know, elevate him into being this, you know, uh, oh my gosh, Andy Murray's rewritten the whole thing. But the flip side of that is, this was a once a true once in a lifetime opportunity. Like we say once in a lifetime a lot, you know, even when he made the Wimbledon final to play Roger a lot, you know, there's a lot of like, Oh, this could be a once in a lifetime opportunity. He might never get back to the Wimbledon final and, you know, right. stuff like that. But this was truly a once in a lifetime opportunity to attempt to win a gold medal at your home Olympics. Yeah. That's huge. You odds know, are, and, odds and, are that they're never going to, there probably won't be an Olympics in London for the rest of his life. Correct. Even like not even playing career, like probably not this century will they ever come to London again. Right. So, so, you know, when you put it into that perspective and kind of view it in, in that lens for him. So maybe like for other players, like you talk about the, you know, Federer, Djokovic or Del Potro or whatever. Yeah, it's the Olympics and they speak very highly of it and they all clearly wanted to win and they played really, you know, well. And, and, and it felt like a slam, like the matches that they were playing. But, you know, is it a slam? No, it's not. But for Andy, it kind of is. And so when you, you start to look at like the pressure that he must have kind of maybe not felt because the Olympics are a little bit different insofar as like he's not on the front page of the paper every single day, you know, yeah. eat a bowl of cereal. Um, the track and field stars are taking the front page. There's barely any, you know, column inches in the paper for tennis at all. Um, and that's a discussion we can have separately, but about whether tennis belongs in the Olympics. But... <laughs> You know, for him personally, it was huge. And so for him to come out and not just win, but win in the way that he did to beat Federer on grass in a best of five match and to play so clearly, he was so 
clear with his intent and what he wanted to do. And there was very little second guessing behind anything that he did today. It was incredible. And it was, it was wonderful to see a guy who really gets knocked around quite a bit for being the choker, for being the guy that blinks, for being a guy who's not a big stage performer, step out there and put together a performance like that against an opponent like that. Um, you know, and it shows also a progression again, like for him in his career and, and his tennis is growing and he's maturing as a player, as an individual, um, as, you know, whatever, 25 year old young guy, he's growing up. And so, and it's impacting his tennis in a positive way. So I'm not going to sit here and dismiss this result at all as we start to head towards the last slam of the year um, on a surface that he loves. But um, at the same time, I'm not. I, people were saying today that he's the favorite going into the U.S. Open. I don't get that at all. So I wouldn't go that far either. So that's kind of my overall take. So I think what was really striking about this final for me is that Andy Murray really gave Roger Federer a complete beatdown. Like, this was Roger Federer getting beat in a way we just don't often see much. If it had been anybody else's name on the scoreboard um, next to Murray's name with, a, you know, a 2 and a 0 next to it after, uh, after what, like 11 games or so, we would have thought it was completely over. But I think that it being Federer let us really sort of not appreciate just how dominant Murray was being in some ways. I think we almost gave Federer too much credit for how competitive the match was when it really wasn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, and I think that, you know, there were definitely turning points. You know, who knows if Federer gets that break in the second set in that long, um, I don't know what game that was. The eighth it was the third game, I think. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but if Federer gets that break, that could have changed everything. But the fact that, that Andy held and, and staved off must have been like six break points, I think, six or seven, maybe more break points in that game alone was huge and, and uh, was very deflating to Fed after that. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was a thorough and, and, and complete beatdown. And it was pro- and I would venture to say it's Federer's worst loss in a best of five, like, final since, like, Rafa tra- almost, like, bageled him, triple bageled him or whatever. In At two- the French. Yeah, 2000-whatever, eight. Yeah, 2008. And that was on Federer's, at the time, worst surface, and probably still his worst surface against a player who was, you know, established as greatest of all time on that surface. And Murray is was on grass and is not established as greatest of all time by any stretch. So, uh, yeah. So I think this is, in some ways, sort of more uh, striking. And obviously everyone talks about the gold medal thing, but do we think that Federer sort of choked or didn't show up to this match? Well, he says that he was, at least some of the comments that I've read, is that he said that he was just kind of like... Um... Uh, it was an emotionally taxing week of tennis for him. And yeah. that's understandable given the semifinal that he played against uh, Del Potro that went, whatever, 1917. Is that yes. right? Mm-hmm. In the third. So so that's understandable. Um, but, you know, he's, he didn't seem to be struggling physically. You know, he was going for a gold medal. He's, you know, the number one. He's going on this crazy streak. I, You know, everybody has their bad days. And, and when you're, you know, the fact of the matter is when you're pushing in age, when you're not 25, but you're, you're, you're 30, 31 or whatever, you know, bad days come a little bit more frequently than not. So, you know, it could have just been one of those, those things, but again, 
you know, if this was like a close match and Andy eked it out and Federer wasn't playing that great, I think that maybe the read on the match might be different. But just the way that Andy played, not just against Federer, but also against Djokovic in the semifinal, it was almost like the same match. Like if you look at the, the, what happened with him when he played against Novak, he played fantastic. And on the big points, he stepped it up and he didn't, you know, hit easy backhands into the net. And, and he didn't just, you know, make a bad decision and, and uh, kind of have mental lock. You look at those, both, those two matches together and I don't know, there, there is something to be said about maybe a new Andy Murray emerging. What do we think? What do we think caused this change? Was it just the occasion of the London Olympics? Um, my take on it. I mean, I think that there's two ways to look at it. Either one way is that the psychology of the Olympics, right? So you win the semifinal, you're guaranteeing uh-huh. yourself a, a medal. You're not going to leave, you know, empty-handed. So yeah. that there's does, no reason for you to make a crying speech afterwards, really. Exactly. Like that takes a lot of the pressure off. Um, you combine that into the final. You combine that with the fact that there is less pressure anyway for Andy Murray at the Olympics as opposed to Andy Murray at Wimbledon or at the U.S. Open or any other slam. That adds to it, too. So it makes it a little bit probably an easier environment for him to within which to compete. Uh, the crowd helps as well. But I, I do think, though, that the, the way that he played against Roger for basically a set and a half, two sets, and really for are good, I mean, you know, a good number of sets. The, Murray played well uh, in the Wimbledon final. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so I think that he, if I'm Andy Murray, at least as one who enjoys watching Andy Murray play tennis and has watched him a lot, like, I leave the Wimbledon final and I think, God, he was so close. And if he, all the pieces are there and he just has to put it together. And if yep. he puts it together, he can win that match. And especially also if, especially if it stays outdoors like this Olympic final did for him. Unexpectedly, actually. Unexpectedly. I was convinced that the roof was going to close for this match. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can see kind of mentally how he gets from, you know, being reduced to a river of tears on center court four weeks ago today to, you know, having a stupid-ass grin on his face uh, after winning. It's... Um, it just it, he just needed a moment to kind of like process it, and he was like, "No, I'm on the right way. Let's go." Almost like you know, with um, Rafa after the uh, Australian Open loss. Yeah. That you know he lost, but he he felt like he was getting closer, and he felt like he had found some solutions, um, and that confidence spurred him on to to you know the, the 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 clay court season and how he was able to compete. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes complete sense. Um, you you mentioned the crowd in there, and we got a question on Tumblr. I believe, and if you have it handy, that sort of um, relates to this, and we can discuss sort of that. We got a few questions we're going to try to integrate into the general part of the show today, so why don't we come up with this one if you have it Okay, Um, somebody asked on our Tumblr uh, from Anonymous. Hi, Uh, Anonymous. Hello, Anonymous, and thank you for your question. So the question reads, one of the big takeaways for me from the Olympics being held at Wimbledon was the change in the people attending. I imagine it was reminiscent of the People's Monday, a thing of the past with the roof now in place. My question, do you think we will see changes to the tournament following this experience? I think it's the only tournament without a kid's day. And walking the grounds, I really didn't miss the presence of the debenture holders, only that the posh dining areas were empty. So, yeah, so Anonymous's question basically gets to the point of how night and day the Olympics crowd was compared to the Wimbledon crowd. I mean, what was your take uh, watching it all, Ben? I mean, 
just crowd-wise, I, I think we talked about last episode, or one of the episodes we've done, I wasn't a big fan of the purple switching, or the, um, or even to some degree the color wearing. I, I like sort of the the visual stodginess of Wimbledon to a degree. I think it's their whole sort of uh, shtick, and I think it's what makes them so vaunted and traditioned and whatever. That said, I thought the crowds there were really cool, and I thought it was very cool how much they got behind Andy Murray because at times, and Laura Robson and Heather Watson and whoever else is playing, because there have been times at Wimbledon in years past, whether it's Murray or Tim Henman, where I've just been sort of amazed that they don't do that the British crowd doesn't do everything in its power to try to get their guy to win. And Murray has always fed off the energy of the crowd really, really well. So I think that they deserve a definite assist in this gold medal because of what they were able to bring to this. And it's cool that it was different for the Olympics because if this made it definitely not the Wimbledon redux, I think some people were fearing it might be. I think that's totally right. And and one of the interesting comments Andy Murray made on an interview with BBC today after he won was he said that, you know, the crowd being so loud actually kind of slowed Federer's pace of play down because obviously we all know Fed likes to take, you know, a, you know, very little time between serves yeah. um, and between points. But because the crowd was getting so raucous and especially because Murray was playing so well, so they had a lot to celebrate, um, it didn't let Roger play within his the rhythm that he likes which i found to be a really interesting observation that's interesting yeah yeah so so i think yeah the crowd definitely gets an assist um even more so for maybe not as much for andy murray but but even more so for the the lesser brits you know getting the cheers you know you know from laura robson or heather watson as you said or Who both won singles matches i believe who both won singles matches um and, and the crowds at the mixed uh for for andy and laura were fantastic so um you know, I think it was great. Um, um, I don't, I forget. Have you been to Wimbledon? I have. I have. You have? Yeah. Okay. So that's the thing is that what you said is dead on that, that a lot of that crowd is exactly what makes Wimbledon Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> Polite, kind of quiet applause um, to, you know, whatever. And I think that the sort, it was... the sort of upper class is watching the, um, the peasants do battle for their amusement. Precisely right. Precisely right. So um, you know, it, 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 I would love, I would absolutely love for the Olympic crowd to be the crowd that shows up at Wimbledon. I think it would be awesome. But I think that at the end of the day, ticket prices, <laughs> yeah. ticket availability, um, the way that Wimbledon does tickets, which is through like a ballot system. It's very, very um, sort of arcane and hard to get them, if you, even if you really want them. It can be hard to get Wimbledon tickets. Right. You basically either have to do the public ballot and luck out, get tickets, and then still pay. I mean, the tickets are not cheap. Or you have to be a debenture holder, which is ridiculously expensive, obviously, to, to do that. Or you buy them off Ticketmaster at the closer to the venue day, uh, closer to the event day, which is like again, you're getting gouged. So when you're talking about a tournament that is basically asking people who have money to shell it out, you're not going to get generally, I think, the rowdy crowds. Um, right. That you get at Wimbledon, where where tickets were a little bit, even though there were some screw ups with the ticketing system, generally some major screw ups apparently. Huge screw ups. I mean, it was uh, it was so annoying to see so many empty seats, um, and people complaining that they wanted tickets and they couldn't get them. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so so long as as the as the as Wimbledon is geared towards the middle class, middle to upper class, and by the way, middle class in Britain means something completely different than middle class in the states. Yeah, it means rich, but not you know. Not titled, essentially. 
you're not a sir or yes. a, a dame. Um, but yeah, it's you're going to get that crowd forever, and that's never going to change. I think the All England Club prides itself on that. And crowd. we don't. And like we said, we don't hate that entirely. I don't think the sort of maybe maybe you do more than I do, but I, I sort of I don't mind that Wimbledon is the sort of bastion of chivalry and whatnot. It's sort of part of what makes it unique in the sports world. Yeah, I mean, I, they still have the queue system, which I've always been a huge proponent of and champion of. I love that you can queue for tickets. And so you do get, I think, a little bit more of an eclectic mix on the grounds than I think sometimes pe- fans who have never been to Wimbledon are led to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, people just decked who are, you know, have showered for four days because they've been sleeping in tents trying to get in, you know, stuff like that. Um, so on the outer you can actually have really, really great atmosphere. Um, and I remember watching Laura Robson beat Angelique Kerber last year in the first round on one of the outer courts that was just jammed, packed uh, with people standing, you know, on ledges trying to get a look and people were screaming and it was a great environment. So it is possible. But on the show courts, it's pretty much impossible. So that, that's, that basically goes with what we were saying, that we do think that it would be in the best interests of British tennis if this could continue because it certainly did not hurt the play of Andy Murray and Laura Robson. Correct. So there we go. Another question we got that sort of relates to that, relates more to Andy Murray and a little bit of the atmosphere and the nationalism and whatnot, comes from a Twitter user called Mozartface. Hello, Mozartface. It says, I was comparing Murray's home Olympic win to Djokovic's Davis Cup triumph. Could it spur him on to great things in the same way? So do you think this sort of intensely patriotic victory that he had can there's allegories to draw to what turned around Djokovic's uh, whole career mm. yes and no so I think that Djokovic like the the Davis Cup thing it had so much more to do with bringing the glory to Serbia than the actual matches that he had to play or the process of getting there or you know any heroic performance in and of itself like I think it was just more like whoever I mean if they had beaten you know a crappy team across the net to win the Serbian win Serbia Davis Cup like that would have been just huge no matter what and I think that that's a little bit different than what Andy Murray is going through which is that like it matters that it was Federer across the net it matters that it was at the All England Club it matters that that he was able to do it you know obviously at home so I don't know if it's just like putting on the Stella Adidas kit, which, pause break, awesome kit. It was the best. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's probably my favorite tennis shirt I've ever seen. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I have, like, gone crazy online because I totally would want to buy some of that stuff, and I can't because every time I try and do it, it redirects me to the USA shop. That's annoying. Like, I, it's, I don't know. Some, if, if anybody knows how to get to <laughs> buy, like, the GB kits, like, let us know. We would yeah. or, ju- or just send it some. We, ex- we accept gifts. We do accept gifts. Um, although I do have a pair of the GB wristbands. So I'm jealous of those. I never wear wristbands in my life, but I feel like if I had those, I would start. I oh, would yeah. find a reason. No, they're inspiring. And they're just pretty. But anyway, so I don't think that it necessarily has to do with the fact that, like, you know, he had the flag on his shirt. I think it's just what he did and, and who he played and how he did it and that he won under such circumstances. So I think the result could be the same like I mm-hmm. think could spur him on to you know uh, win the U.S. Open but I also don't think that it would be because of kind of the patriotic aspect of what he was able to do at the Olympics how about that you? Make, 
that makes complete that's perfectly put i think these were much bigger scalps that he achieved this week with beating djokovic and federer he had never beaten djokovic or federer at a slam before and it's this was not quite a slam but it's the closest thing you can get to a slam that's not a slam pretty much i think it's probably fair to say and he beat both of them in straight sets resoundingly and he's now in discussion whether or not it's valid for uh, being U.S. Open favorite, or at least a very, very short list of someone to talk about. Whereas before, uh, there was a lot of immediate trying to bury him at the French Open when, people, when he lost in the quarterfinals to Ferrer, which, by the way, was a completely respectable loss in every way possible. Agreed. Uh, he was like, oh, there's really only top three, there's no top four, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that, at least, I think we can put to bed for the next however long. Do you think that if, Do you think that his win... With his win, um, uh-huh. we can say that there is a big four now, or is it still the big three? Um, I think we can say big four, in definitely for the rest of 2011, or 2012, sorry. If for no other reason than because Rafa has dipped some. I think the whole big four as a group looks more vulnerable than it did, even though they haven't really been losing to other people. I don't know, it just feels like things are a little bit more scrambled. Okay. When, you, when the uh, the four biggest titles this year have been won, won by four different guys. Djokovic won Australia, Nadal won Paris, uh, Federer won Wimbledon, and Murray won the Olympics. So, I don't know. The, the pie is divided very evenly right now, and it's uh, a little bit WTA for the ATP. It's so. fun. I love it. I love the post-Rosal world. It's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a world where Steve Darcis can beat Thomas Berdych in the first round of the Olympics. There we go. Speaking of that match, were there any other... We've talked almost exclusively about people who are in the final. Right. Um, any other men's single stories that stood out to you the way? I mean, obviously, there's going to be the whole debate about the third set or final set tiebreaker or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a question about that, actually. We did. Kind of. Kind of. So we'll, we'll bring this one in because, obviously, this is a, a, a topic that is near and dear to both our hearts, Ben. Um, so this question comes from bshap94. What's up, bshap? Um, and the question is, I didn't feel like the tournament lost anything by being best of three for men. Is it time to ditch best of five except for finals at slams? Well, we had this. We did a toss about this um, on your wonderful Beyond the Baseline site on Sports Illustrated, in which we talked about whether or not the Olympics should be best of five, just like the slams. And we ultimately sort of concurred spontaneously on it being uh, that we don't think it should even be best of five of the slams, and we think best of three is enough. And seeing this week, I sort of agree. I'm ne- I've never been someone who was against the playing out the fifth, um, having the win-by-two situation, just because I did watch It's Never Hoot, and as crazy as it was, I did really sort of enjoy myself while it was going on, even if they didn't. Oh, they're both doing fine at this point, so right. whatever. I liked that, and I really, really liked the way it works with uh, the best of three for the men playing out the third because it's sort of all the drama in half the time. When you play best of five matches, you get a lot of times where people will tank sets or they'll just sort of get down a break in the second set and be like, okay, I got a long time to go. I'll, I'll get it later. But this one sort of just immediately every point matters a lot more. And you do get the sort of satisfying long finishes if there is a tied third set, if that's the kind of thing you're into. If you think that a match's quality has to be uh, measurable somehow in its quantity. So I like I like that a lot. I know that sometimes they can get into serve battles with people like Milos Ronic, who really can't return that well, but can serve big and won't get broken. 
um, or Sam Clare at Wimbledon or whatever, or Isner, but I, I like it. How about you? Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think when we did the toss, uh, we were pretty much, I think, debating, you know, three sets um, or five sets. But I think that what, um, just echoing your point, what I definitely kind of learned watching the Olympics this past week is that I really do like this idea of best of three, no final set tiebreak. Yeah, I think it's cool. It's a great, it's a happy medium. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. You still get your marathon four-hour matches. Um, and it doesn't screw up the schedule and it doesn't, you know, completely destroy a guy's year. I mean, tournament, let alone year, uh, the way that like Isner Mahu did. And it just really feels like, because I will say this because you do this as well, Ben, you live blog matches for the New York times yep. and I live blog for sports illustrated. And I will say that when I'm live blogging for a best of five match, especially mm-hmm. when it's like the early rounds of a tournament, I zone out sometimes. Oh, yeah. It's, it's impossible not to. Because I'm, I'm like, there's stuff happening, and I, I could tell you what's happening, but I'll be honest with you, it's not important because of the way that the score is, because, you know, for whatever reason, it's not really all that, um, you know. It's, it's part of the reason um, upsets are part of it, but I think it's also part of the reason that in the first week when there are multiple matches going on at all times, I wind up a lot of times watching more women's tennis first week than men mm-hmm. because precisely right you yeah. can feel like you can sing the whole thing then i feel like and at every part of it's relevant you know if it's these men's matches you get that are like i don't know um uh nadal played schwank at the french open this year and it was a complete joke but and it just wasn't competitive at all but it still took about like an hour and 40 minutes i'm guessing it probably didn't take that long but bear with me here for the sake of example and then, meanwhile, like, on the women's side, you have a blowout match. It's, like, Sharapova versus Tadantu, and it takes, like, you know, 42 minutes. And it's just sort of, there's not as much needless drawing stuff out as there is uh, on the men's side, on the women's side, with the best of three. And I think that the players would probably, after, might be initially resistant, certain players who sort of make their careers on being grinder types, like, I don't know, um... Who, who even is a five-set type specialist? Do we have any more these days? Um, there are. Oh, my gosh. Who was it that I was thinking about that always goes five? Let's I, say Arno Clement. Let's, say, let's pretend he was relevant. I feel like he plays a lot of five-setters. He's retired, but continue. Yes. Let's pretend he was still active. Somebody like that who's like, no, tennis is about, you know, just being a battle, about being a war of attrition, about being, you know, ready to outlast the other guy. Those are not virtues I hold especially near and dear to my heart. I don't. I think I said this um, about grass when the grass season started. I like the grass tennis more than clay because clay can kind of feel like arm wrestling sometimes. You know, like there's less tactics involved and it's just sort of throwing body blows until the other guy falls down. Mm-hmm. And that's not what tennis needs to be. And I think tennis has become that way because everyone's in such great shape and the physicality is so level now that you sort of... You can get every ball back with the technology, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I think shorter tennis does everybody a favor. It is kind of an interesting question to ask, though, because um, I definitely used to be one of those people who would argue that, like, oh, you know, fitness is, you know, if a guy is fitter than the other guy, like, that should be an advantage that he should be allowed to take advantage of, you know, in at the biggest stages, the slam. So best yeah. five, you know, like, if you're fitter and you can outgrind, if you can Andre Agassi people in the dead of heat and, and just grind them down over the course of five sets. Like you should get that advantage. 
but I have over time kind of come around to this notion that that's not very fun to watch. No. <laughs> like as just from an entertainment perspective and wanting the sport to grow and to be more popular, it's kind of a tough sell. And when you have, like I was in the, the live blog seat for the men's Australian Open final six hours. Yeah. I, I did not, I did not envy you for that. Yeah, that was not fun. And not because I was live blogging it, but because I was trying to pay attention to every single point and every single momentum swing. And it was just exhausting. Yeah. You know, like, why not just condense it down? And, and is this really fun to watch two people try and kill themselves? Like, uh, have we all of a sudden regressed to, like, you know, Roman times where now, like, these it's just gladiator t- days and they just fight to the death and whoever's left standing or sitting, as it was, um, at the Aussie Open is, is somehow the best tennis player. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think WTA has found sort of a happy medium in that regard or sort of has struck one by accident. You have you have players who are not necessarily in the best shape who can win matches, but it can also get them exposed in a certain other matches. Mm. Um, and I don't think it should be a factor all the time. Like it usually, it's going to be a factor in a men's match that goes four sets or more. So, yeah, I th- that's basically what I think of that. I think that, I don't know, it would be a lot of work to make that the format at the slams. I think the Players' Council would have to do that. and But I think there would be some pretty good acceptance of it from the tournament side, because I think best of three, airing that is probably more desirable to television, especially if you can guarantee the still best of five final. And if you really want, you can have, like, the semis best of five, too, or something. But Right. I think for the first week, I think there's no need for it whatsoever. Yeah. No, I, I would be, I would absolutely, I'd be really interested to, to, to know what other people think on this, because yeah. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who think that, like, put a lot of emphasis on the fitness, and I'm not saying that I don't, but I don't know, I would like, I mean, I haven't come to a conclusion on yeah. I know. I noticed that during the tournament, both, uh, I think it was probably right after the Federer match, the Federer-Del Potro match, which sort of was the archetype, like, great, you know, long third set match in the sort of new format, Um both Darren Cahill and Patrick McEnroe weighed in afterwards being like, wow, best of three is pretty cool. So, And just from a from kind of a pragmatic perspective, it's a hell of a lot easier to sell best of three to television yeah. than best of five. And yeah. uh, you can you can kind of you can basically, you know, sell smaller windows of time. Um, you can get more tennis on TV. Um, it just it would just be I think it would just be better. But um like I said, I, I haven't come to a conclusion on it or really a firm opinion on it. I would love to hear what people think. Yeah. So why don't we segue to get back to the sort of other Olympic stuff because we do have other events to cover. Um, best of th- It wasn't even a complete best of three in the mixed doubles draw this year. It was best of two, sort of. Or the, I don't know exactly what you call it. Best of three, but one of the sets was a 10-point tiebreak. Right. And all four matches in the medal round um, were decided by that 10-point tiebreak. Just called a champion's tiebreak or a super tiebreak in the old days, I think. Or a match tiebreak. Or match tiebreak, or you know, a way to screw over doubles players as they said when it first got and started or whatever. Right. Um, but so that made for some pretty crazy results. And the British team of Laura Robson and Andy Murray, I believe, won all three of their matches in super tiebreaks and Correct. had their one loss in a super tiebreak. It's like ten eight in the last one. So, what did you think about seeing this uh, this format used? in this uh, important Olympic situation. And what do you think about mixed city Olympics overall? 
I'm conflicted about the champions tiebreak because I, on one hand, I'm like, really, we're going to split sets and then flip a coin because seriously, like that's what a 10 point tiebreak is. You know, it's, um, but at the same time, having watched a lot of the mixed and having watched, had to sit through a lot of the champions tiebreaks, um, they were exciting. They were. They were really, again, it has this whole notion of like when you make the matches shorter, yes, you add a bit of capriciousness to the result, but at the same time, every point is significant. And may I, may I interject for a second? Yes, you may. Speaking of capricious results, I'm watching on TV Alexander Dolgopolov getting awarded a check for $250,000 for winning the Washington tournament. Just Incredible. FYI. That just happened. Hey, man, Ukraine, if he's not going to get his money from Ukraine, Get his money from DC. Exactly. Anyway, continue with your points about mixed. But yeah, no, so I, you know, there, it was tremendously exciting. Um, I enjoyed it. But I also, at the same time, I kind of feel like I enjoyed mixed uh, definitely more than I thought that I was going to. Um, and I kind of would have liked to see a full third set. Yeah. Like I would have liked to, have, you know, and um, especially because of the way that mixed works with obviously generally the idea is the girls get broken every single time. Yeah. Um, and it's really for the guys to hold. It it really that adds another element to it as well as to kind of what order you start at in the tiebreak, right? I th- I think it's cool the way the tiebreak works, um, is that the server changes constantly. Like yep. it's not like Laura Robinson gets stuck in a marathon serve on her game on her serve. It's like she has to fight for these two points and then she gets you know six points off from serving and then it'll be her turn to feel the pressure again and then you know rotates like so but i think i think it being in the olympics having this um and they do actually do the 10 point tiebreak thing for mix of the slams also the australian open final i know was decided in a 10 point tiebreak in the final uh which was won by bethany maddock over vesnina and pays yeah i do think that seeing it in the olympic context though it sort of bothered me less because it's not like you're comparing it to all the other formats i was almost comparing it to well they get you know 10 whole points whereas Michaela Maroney gets to jump twice for her, you know, to define her life. <laughs> Seriously. That, that's a really good point. So I think that sort of because you see the Olympics, you see dreams crashing and burning left and right and all that kind of stuff. I think that the unpredictability and the capriciousness, as you said, of the results didn't bother me as much as it possibly could have. And I think that it also didn't bother me as much. And this is probably it's just a, a totally like unfair way to make this argument because like as a a tool of logic this doesn't Mm -hmm. work but uh i mean the results because of the way the results came out in mixed where you had azarenka and mirny who are a well-established extreme i mean number one seed for a reason vika is an amazing doubles player like if you guys have never seen her actually play doubles she's great uh, she's fantastic and i'm convinced to this day that if she would just incorporate more net play in her singles game she would actually be like a do- like a dominant player again. Like she would be fantastic. But anyways, they won the gold. So okay, so two players. One's a double specialist. The other one's really good at doubles. They're both number one, by the way. Right, right. So they they won the gold. Great bronze medal. You had Lisa Raymond and Mike Bryan beating uh, Sabina Lisicki and Christopher Kaz in the bronze medal match. And so the double specialists again beat out like. You know, I guess Cass is kind of a doubles guy. Barely. He was definitely, of the 32 players in the mixed draw, he was the one where we were like, huh? Um, yeah. Because it was a fairly star-studded thing, right. but uh, he did not, I don't think many people showed up to the court to see Christopher Cass. 
yeah, no. So I think that because the results weren't so random, like we didn't have really random teams like winning, it made me not hate the champions tiebreak that much. And yet it still did provide for some excitement and random resultage with respect to like, you know, Laura and Andy who, you know, made it through, I think almost came from behind in every single champions tiebreak to get the gold medal match. You know, maybe that's where the singles players do are able to kind of step up and just kind of be aggro and not think about tactics and just rip the ball and it works sort of thing. Um, But uh, singles players got rewarded for entering. It's basically the thing. If you consider Azarenka a singles player, even though she's established doubles, you know, very good. But she's first and foremost a singles player. Um, She wins that. She's a top ranked singles player. She's top ranked to enter. Andy Murray is the only top eight singles player to enter on the men's side and he gets a gold, silver medal for it. And I would have liked to have seen more top singles players, therefore give it a shot. And hopefully we will in Rio because I think that it's a prize worth winning. And I was disappointed that, you know, Petra didn't wind up entering the draw like she had said she would. Yep. That Serena never wound up there as she had talked about for years, possibly playing mixed. Um, even though she did win two events, it's hard to knock her Olympics, but you got the sense when you saw her play singles that she had plenty of energy left. Which is why I would love to see, and I know this will most likely never happen because of the way that the tennis, the regular tennis schedule works, is to have a longer tournament at the Olympics yeah. so that you space out matches so that players can play all three events if they want to. Yeah, I've thought that about the Olympics always, about especially like swimming or something. Ryan Lochte like, has problems entering both, I don't know, 100 back and 200 IM because they're on the same day. Like, you know, if you're the best in both events, you shouldn't get screwed over by the schedule. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think about that. But right. I, yeah, I would, would like to see more top people in there. And I thought it was good the top people who did enter took it seriously. Um, sure. And I do think the U.S. would have been better served by having Serena uh, and Bob. Or Venus and Bob. They got lucky. They got unlucky, sorry, that Venus lost like the day after in singles, the day yeah. after entries. Because I do think that they would have gotten her in there. She yeah. might not have made the cut, though, because her ranking isn't as good. Um, and Kim Kleisters, who was all set to play mix as her final event, didn't get offered a wild card or anything. Um, it was way too small a draw. They need a bigger draw, and they need more top single singles players. So. Yep. No. Those it, are my thoughts. No, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny, too, because when you think about it, you know, if Andy Murray doesn't lose that ma- that doubles match with his brother. Yeah. Who, he's not playing. He was, he would never, he's never going to play mixed. And let's Jamie would have played, I bet. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Then Jamie would have played. Well, but Jamie. Well, they would have gotten a wild card, right? Because I'm thinking ranking, but the wild card would have got him in. The Brits were getting in anyway. Because Andy got a wild card as is. He didn't get in with Laura direct on ranking because her ranking is way too low to qualify. Right. But the funny thing is that if Jamie were to be the one who was going to want to do mixed, and he was going to be the guy who wanted the wild card. Um. Oh, you know what though? But isn't he ranked lower than like Ross Hutchins? Yeah, he is. No, Hutchins and Fleming are ranked higher than Jamie Murray. So one of them might have been the one... They might have, but Jamie Murray does have that Wimbledon mixed title to his name. Yeah, but I think that that I suspect, and this is totally speculation, I suspect that if Andy didn't didn't get into mixed, that the wild card probably would have gone to Ross, Hutchins, and Heather Watson, who have played together before. Very fair. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, they, they could have had the, the similar run, but it's just so funny how the the way that the chips fell resulted in a singles medal for both of them. Because Jamie Murray 
Um, this is sort of harsh, but because Jamie Murray like choked on serve against the Austrians in the first round, Laura Robson has a medal. Pretty much. Yeah. And because Laura Robson, <laughs> I mean, if you really want to take it even further, because Laura Robson has family in Perth and spends like the holidays in Perth. Yeah. She was like able to, not able to convince, but Andy Murray was willing to play Hopman Cup a few years ago and teamed up with her. She was like, oh, I'll be here anyway. They were willing, and they were willing to, ha- and the organizer of Hopman were willing to think of her as an acceptable Hopman person, even though she was, you know, outside the top 200 at that point, probably. She, she was Australian born and they had a story and her family was there. So they play together. She does fantastic. They, you know, and they play mixed and they get along and blah, blah, blah. Flash forward, whatever, three years later, when it comes down to Andy Murray trying to decide who he wants to pick as a doubles partner. It, he doesn't. He doesn't go with the number one Brit. No. Much to Heather Watson's annoyance, but so yeah. It, so it goes indeed. We haven't talked about much about Laura directly, only sort of in this and Andy context. But what do we think this win means for her? Um, I don't know. That's a really good question because she did. I mean, I think people forget that for her, I, a people forget she's only 18 years old. Because yeah. she won when she she won Wimbledon Juniors at fourteen. It We've known the name forever, but she's yeah, eighteen. Forever, but she's eighteen years old, and this is her first full year on the WTA tour. So, and she's you know already cracked the top one hundred. She made her first WTA semifinal in Palermo a couple weeks ago. So she's mm-hmm. better. Um, so yeah, I mean she she's. I think the the only problem with it is that not the problem, but the downside almost is that. I think that her performance at the Olympics goes to somewhat solidify the fact that she's like a really good big match player. Yeah. Loves the big stage. Like, you know, she played Sharapova tough. She, you know, won her first round match over Lucy Safarova, which ain't easy. That was, that was an impressive win. I was going to say that win almost bodes as well as anything for her. For sure. I mean, best win of her career. I mean, numbers wise. So, um, yeah, so she is playing better. Um, I think people don't realize how injured she's been um, beginning of this year and then also last year. So, you know, a lot is made of kind of early crash outs and stuff like that. But, um, you know, kid 18, she's still growing, uh, much to her chagrin, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> injuries do pop up. But, you know, we'll see because, you know, the, the U.S. hard court season is coming up. Um, she's she's directly qualified into the U.S. Open. She doesn't have to play qualifications anymore, which is if you first direct entry into a slam, I believe. Yeah, she's she's completed like the Robo qualification slam or something. Like yep. she's made all four slams in four different ways this year. Yeah, she made it. She qualified in Australia, got a lucky loser in uh, France, and wild card at Wimbledon, and now direct in. So she can, I think she has a special exempt or protected ranking somewhere if she wants to use them later on. But there you go. Uh, but yeah, so so um, I don't know. We'll see. 18 year old kid. I'm not really one to kind of read into the results. I mean, we're, you know, I, I, I'd rather spend my time like trying to figure out why like the 22, 23, 24 year olds are sucking than, you know, what an 18 year old kid's doing. But I think that, that top 60 is definitely doable by the end of the year. Yeah, that sounds that sounds fair. Um so we have talked about the men in the mix, and we just talked about a woman. So why don't we go to the woman, women's uh, singles for a while, which I haven't really discussed. Um, we talked about how painful it was live blogging the Australian Open final. 
I live blog, and I believe you did too, the women's singles final um, of the Olympics. Yeah. And that was that was pretty breezy. That was not a hard day's work. No. That <laughs> was it was an easy easy uh, easy uh, paycheck, I guess. I mean, because Serena just that was. I mean, we talk about how brutal and lopsided the men's final was, but Serena took it to a whole a whole other level in what she did to Maria Sharapova, who has been her punching bag before. But this is this was absurd. It was absurd. It, I mean, I, I don't know how your live blog went, but mine, like, we basically, like, stopped talking about the match. Yeah. <laughs> I was updating the score and, like, you know, because we have comments and we push the comments through and it just ended up being, like, kind of more of a chat room yeah. <laughs> for the, the hour that, that that was going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was awkward. And, you know, the, the Sharapova uh, Serena dynamic is always really interesting because obviously from a marketing perspective, it gets sold. Everybody was calling it like the dream final. And yeah. I'm like, how, how can you possibly say that? You understand what, like you're selling a product that will not deliver. It, you're selling the two best players. You're selling like two great ingredients, but the recipe cooks up something pretty inedible to watch. Yeah. Like, I mean, Serena really completely turned the rivalry around in Australian Open 2005 when they were playing really competitive matches at that point. And uh, she came back, saved three match points in the semifinal of the Australian Open, and Sharapova has never been the same against her, Yep. to speak in broad terms. Um, been one, maybe two close matches since then in straight sets. But yeah, she just completely has her number, and, and Sharapova knows that. Yep. And uh, it wasn't wasn't pretty to watch but it was pretty watch in the sense that you felt like you were seeing serena playing at a level you know so far beyond what would be beatable by any player currently in the women's game and i'll ask you this and it's just a question because i always i mean this isn't well i'll just ask it to you is it good or bad that the women's final was what it was i think it was bad okay just because i mean this this happens with women's tennis a lot there are people who are out there for various reasons trying to diminish women's tennis i mean and we're both we're both obviously big supporters of women's tennis but i think that when you have someone go through a tournament and have it not be competitive with the number one and three players in the world that just i don't know it seems like something's amiss do you i mean do you think people were complaining about it when graph was doing this um i honestly don't remember yeah exactly I don't either. Um, I don't know. I don't think that. I don't think that women's tennis had the profile it did when Graf was doing it. I think Graf sort of dominated in a sort of um, a, a long, but sort of in some ways like almost like an interregnum in, t- in women's tennis mm. um, between like Navratilova, Everett, and uh, the Hengist Williams stuff that happened later. Yeah. I know that probably sounds ridiculous because she was doing it for like eight years. Yeah. But I think that sort of tennis, it was just sort of, oh, yeah, there goes Steffi, she wins. I don't think it was exciting a lot of people. Yeah. So I think, and I don't, and, and when she started losing, or not winning, rather, she wasn't exactly getting beaten by all the people who took over from her. So I don't know. She doesn't really fit the mold, I don't think. But Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, if, if you know, when people were watching Steffi Graf roll through six rounds of Wimbledon, you know, not losing more than two games or three games a match. Yeah. If people were looking at it and saying, wow, that's just how good Steffi is, or if they were saying, 
God, that's how horrible everybody else is. I think there's going to be some of both. I think there has to be. I, I, I will say, though, I, I probably didn't give the final fair shade the first time. I did sort of, it was all striking to see. I mean, Serena was playing. That's one of the greatest of all time. And I think I said, I sort of threaded this needle carefully when I said it afterwards. But I thought that, like, no one has ever played at as high a level as Serena's playing right now. I think Serena at that level would be, I mean, in the time machine matches, which obviously are problematic. But, I mean, it's not close against anybody when she's that playing that well. No, and, and that's always been how I phrase it as well. I carefully phrase it with respect to Serena, where I do truly believe that Serena is the greatest like, you know, she is, she plays at a level that no one's ever played at. at her she might not be the most accomplished player of all time. And what I think a lot of people sort of make the greatest of all time argument into based on just need for numbers to back it up or something. But, right. But you can't look at Serena play tennis and think that Graf would beat her. No, you just can't. That Lindsay would beat her when she's playing like this. Or, or Navratilova. Right. Even if you sort of. Never twelve obviously was a much different era, different equipment and all that different stuff. Um, but yeah. 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 That that doesn't necessarily mean that I think that she's the greatest of all time, but that's a completely different argument. But yeah, at the, are you talking level of tennis? No Agreed. Difference. Yeah. We agree. And I also just to get sort of on a tangent, I don't when people I'm curious what you think about this, completely this is not Olympic related. When people are saying, Oh, but Steffi won all four in eighty eight or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it's in some ways more impressive that Serena has been able to summon this dominance, like essentially like a decade apart from itself. She won all three, all, sorry, all four in a row in uh, 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. And now 10 years later, she's back on top of the mountain, knocking away challengers without, without batting an eyelash. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's very similar to why Federer's win at Wimbledon was so spectacular. Yeah. It's not just that, like, oh, he beat Andy Murray and he played really well, but, like, that he was able to summon that level of tennis um, at this stage in his career. And, again, and especially with, like, recapturing the number one ranking, so obviously that means that within the last 52 weeks he has had the best results of anybody. And so um, that's a pretty remarkable thing for a guy who, you know, let's face it, a lot of people were writing off. And uh, thinking that, 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 you know, Rafa was just going to take him over permanently or, or Novak or something like that. So the longevity is, I mean, it, it's hard to really, it's hard to give that enough due. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Shifting back to, I guess, the rest of the women's draw, which we haven't really touched on much. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, the woman at the other end of that equation, uh, Maria Sharapova, who was in her first Olympics. Flag bearer seemed to be really a completely different personality throughout a lot of the games. And at least with a silver medal um, that she sort of had Serena uh, deliver to her in an unpleasant fashion, to put it <laughs> euphemistically. I was going to quote Serena, but I decided not to. Yeah, let's not. Let's not. What do we make of, of Maria Sharapova's first Olympics? Well, Ben, I, th- I think you and I had been talking about this earlier in the week about, and you were the one, I think, that maybe termed it. But, uh, yeah, what we think of Olympic Maria versus regular yeah. season Maria. Um, what I, I'll pose it back to you because you're the one that, that uh, had a fairly, I think, coherent and, and reasoned opinion on it. Well, you're setting the bar very hard for what I'm about to say. Um, I think that, I think that yeah, that Sharapova played just sort of a looseness and a sort of open, you know, she felt, she felt human for the first time. I mean, she has this sort of 
unbelievable steely steeliness when she plays. She has this sort of perma fist that she does with her hand between points where she's always clenching and always tense and never really sort of showing, I don't know, vulnerability. But uh, in the Olympics, she really looked like it meant a lot more to her, and she understands that odds are, just based on her age and based on the uncertainty of tennis and problems she's had with injury, odds are she won't be top four in the world again when Rio comes around. And despite a lot of debates, we don't even know what surface Rio is going to be on yet. We don't know where she'll be. She'll still be in tennis, blah, blah, whatever. She seemed to really sort of capitalize on this one moment in time in the same way that uh, Andy Murray did. And I thought it was kind of cool to see this sort of different beast come out of them. Yeah, it, she she seemed different. Yeah. It wasn't it, like when there were wins, it just it wasn't like, oh, yeah, so that was clockwork. Yeah. You know, uh, business done for the day. Let's go home and chill out. It was, you know, every every win offered uh, a pretty big celebration, I think, for her. Yep. And and I think, you know, I mean, in the big context of things right now and in the big scheme of things, silver is exactly right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, you know, I thought that it was cool that that the. Um, you know, the three medalists on the women's side, the three slam champions of the year. I thought that that was actually great. That's, that, that's good for women's tennis. That part yeah, is good. Yeah, very good for women's tennis. And and I may have written this or tweeted this before, but I also think that, because obviously right now we're really, really high on Serena's horse. I think that everybody's just like, oh, like, you know, she's back. And, and she may very well be, but, you know, like you and I, Ben, like I still remember very vividly having conversations with you like at the Aussie Open and at Indian Wells when we were talking about Azarenka and kind of saying like, how do you beat her yeah. when she's playing like this? She looked absolutely unbeatable. Her streak to start the year was not a fluke. No. Like it wasn't like she was like lucking out wins. Like she was beating people. She played She played like a game without weaknesses whatsoever. Right. And it was... Um... It was just weird, to see. and it was sort of an amorphous game because there's no clear one strength either that was powering her over things. It was just solid, 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 solid. She was doing everything well. Yeah, everything well, nothing badly. Right. And the things that she was—I mean, she doesn't have a great second serve, but she was defending that better, making it less attackable than before. You know, her weaknesses were stronger, and her strengths were clicking. And she's very all well-rounded, and she's going to come back on hard court soon. So it'll be very—I'm very interested to see what. Victoria Azarenka does uh, Cincinnati, U.S. Open, maybe Toronto if she plays there, but I doubt it. Or Montreal. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think that the you know there will be questions about her going forward after after taking the loss like that, um, that sort of performance. Um, she's number one. She's going to start. She's not going to get the Wozniacki level interrogations about stuff, but she's going to get the. Um, I don't, I don't think, I can't think of anybody who quite had this. Uh, Hingis or something. Hingis stayed number one for a while after she stopped winning slams. And while the Williamses were the two dominant forces in tennis. And uh, got a lot of questions about, well, you know, you're number one, but they're clearly better. They're the best right now. They're the ones to beat. Why are you number one? So, right. I mean, I think I don't think Azarenka ever handled number one badly while she had it. So I don't think it'll really be an issue. But it's, it's a narrative. To, she's definitely one to watch going forward for sure. For sure. And she also sure. seemed to take to the Olympics a little bit differently than her normal attitude about things. There was less uh, less swagger, less boxer motif, less uh, stuff. And she does leave with a gold medal in mixed. So it's definitely a good week for her. Oh, fantastic week Even for Even if Luka. she didn't always dress appropriately for the weather, which baffled me to no end. That really annoyed you. Like she, was be, she would be wearing like long sleeves and like leggings that went 
past her knees while her opponent was wearing like you know a sleeveless top and short shorts it's like what like you don't look like you're on the same climate whatsoever well maybe maybe and i'm just saying maybe okay maybe she missed her lucky shorts and since nike only gave her skirts she's like well i'm gonna wear tights then because they're kind of like shorts but they are not but they are closer to shorts than they are than they are a skirt that's an interesting take I could see her. I could see her logicking it out that way. Sure. Because she should have never dropped the shorts. Yeah. No, that was unbelievable that she stopped wearing the shorts. Unbelievable. But uh, maybe she will uh, come U- come U.S. Open time. We'll see. Yes. If she knows so, what's good for her, she will. Exactly. Exactly. That's what that should be. That's what she should be paying Sam Simic to do. To tell her, you know, Victoria, the shorts they worked a lot better. <laughs> that was your Sam Sumick impression? <laughs> I don't know if it was really an impression of anybody. It was just sort of a quote, but sure. Let's say that was. Okay. I think it was yeah. pretty good, having uh-huh. rarely heard him speak. Yeah, you just keep patting yourself on the back there, buddy. That's right. The one draw we haven't talked about yet is men's doubles, which was won by the Bryans in the biggest win of their career. Bryans won the Olympics for the first time. They were bronze in Beijing. They completed their own Golden Slam. Um... Uh, doubles players get a lot of crap sometimes for doubles specialists. Uh, not crap is probably not the word, but sort of uh, shade, let's say, for sort of only being the best at doubles because other people don't play doubles. And maybe de- being a doubles specialist just means that you're not as good at singles. Not that you're just that much better at doubles. Um, people can say that when the Williams sisters would roll over, you know, a Peshki Srebotnik like two and one or something. What do you think about what the Bryan brothers did for their legacy and this with this gold medal and uh, what it sort of said about double specialists in general? Yeah, I think that with respect to the Bryans... I don't think we've ever talked about them on the show before, by the way. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I don't think we've ever talked about them to each other either. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so this is this is all brands making new information. Um, yeah, no, I think that with the Bryans, the, what makes them so important to... to the doubles game and thereby tennis in general. And I think that obviously, you know, they're great ambassadors of tennis. Yes. Like people do need to actually recognize that. I know that a lot of people get turned off by the chest bumping um, and, you know, kind of their hyperactive, you know, bouncing and and things like that. But they're tremendous ambassadors of tennis um, and they need to really get kudos for that. Yeah. But what I think that, that their legacy kind of is not legacy, but, they are double specialists and when you watch them and you watch how good they are at doubles and how much they've been able to dominate doubles over a tremendously long period of time I mean, obviously there's dips and bumps but generally they're they're kind of the preeminent doubles team there's a recognition that doubles you have to stop and recognize that doubles is a completely different game yeah it's an art yeah it's an art and and when you have double specialists who can dominate the way that the Bryans have done that's what it tells you is that you can't just stick two really good singles players together and beat a tactically perfect doubles team. And because of that, that should encourage people to play doubles, yeah, right? Agreed. You know, and, and that's an important thing, I think. And, uh, and you see it all the time, you know, like Rafa and Novak teamed up in Toronto a couple of years ago and they crashed out in the first round. Do you, trivia, do you remember who they lost to? Pospisil. And I forget the other dude's Ronich. name. Was that Ronich? That was the first time we ever heard of Milos Ronich, was that match. Oh, I knew it was Poshvasil, but I didn't know it was Ronich. There yeah. you go. There you go. Yeah, so, you know, you can't just slap two singles together, players together and make it. 
you know, uh, that it can being, sometimes it does work sometimes. That being said, uh, the two other doubles teams that were on the, the podium on flanking the, the Bryans were two French teams that are basically singles players. Yeah. Loja, I mean, Loja plays a lot of doubles, but he has made more single success than anybody we currently consider a single, a double specialist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, you have that, and then at the same time, you have, like, the Williamses, who I think are a bit underrated in how good of doubles, like, actual doubles players they are. Yeah, and they're getting better. They're getting better. I mean, people just kind of assume because they hit the ball really hard and they're intimidating, they win, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Serena said something about when she was playing World Team Tennis a couple years ago, uh, mm-hmm. maybe just one year ago, actually, that she was talking a lot to um, Leander Pays about double strategy stuff, because they're both on the same team for stretch of, you know, seven days or something, traveling together and whatnot. And she's apparently just sort of grilling him on doubles tips because she felt like she had a lot to learn in that category that he could teach her. And he's sort of the classic, like, specialist guy who can make singles players look silly. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, so so it's good to see that. Even today in the mixed doubles um, final, you know, like uh, Robson and Murray took the first set really easily, 6-2. And in the second set, Azarenka and Mirny, being the experienced doubles players that they were, like switched over to an I formation and mm-hmm. that completely flipped the second set. Um, and they, they've kind of won it going away, like kind of really confusing, I think a little bit Murray and Robson. Um, so again, like an, an instance where knowing the game of doubles and what works and, and angles and, and how to play the game does go in your favor. You, you can't just hit through that. So, so yeah, so I think that the Bryans are always a good reminder of that. I think I thought it was interesting. One of the interesting things Justin Gimelsab said during his commentary this uh, this tournament was about how the Bryans and he obviously is like really good friends with every American tennis player who's basically on top right now. And he was talking about how the Bryans were really sort of the one feather in their cap they felt like they were missing was Indian Wells. They've never won Indian Wells apparently, mm-hmm. and they feel like it's sort of it's the paramount best doubles tournament in the on the calendar because all the top singles guys play it. And that sort of really sort of stuck in their craw as something that they felt was a no- possible knock on them or something that they hadn't won Indian Wells. So I think the Olympics is the second, if not just as good as Indian Wells, second best in yeah. terms of field. So I thought I just thought that was an interesting uh, sort of thing that I never would have thought of being having Indian Wells being a missing jewel in your crown. It is it is the perfect tennis tournament. Yeah, really is. So we talked a little bit about. I guess that, that covers mostly men's and doubles, men's and women's doubles, um, and all the other stuff. Do we have any other sort of single stuff? Oh, let's let's speaking of Justin Gimelstab, uh, there was an odd moment that I believe we both saw on the Bravo Network, which had a it's had a fair number of odd moments this week. Yes, it's a, it's a new set of tennis people or a different set of tennis people for a big event, and some I think they performed you know to varying degrees of goodness. Um, but the one moment that really stuck with people was Ryan Harrison being brought back the day after he lost to uh, look into the camera and apologize to America, um, which neither of us were able to find video of again. I actually did a lot of looking for it, but could not dig it up and uh, felt really dumb for not setting my DVR that day. Yeah. But uh, what what did you make of the Ryan Harrison moment? Just sort of set it up for people who probably didn't see it because not many people saw it for how, but everyone who did see it had a visceral reaction to it. Yes, yes. So Ryan Harrison lost in the first round 
um, in response to losing, uh, well, he, he basically had kind of a, a bit of a temper tantrum uh, on court, you know, throwing the racket, um, things like that, which, you know, it happened and there were some tweets about it. But for the most part, it was a match that nobody really saw. Like everybody was like, OK, whatever. Um, the, highlights of the highlights of the tantrum did get replayed a fair amount, I will say. The funny thing is I never saw the highlights of the tantrum. I, I only saw. I saw him like four or five times that yeah. day weird I, I, yeah i guess i just missed it that day, it, was an, but... it was an american result so they're giving it more play than ryan harrison losing normally. Right. right that makes sense but anyway so a couple days later he came on to uh do an interview on bravo and he was sitting on the couch and justin gimmelstab was flanked on one side and pat o'brien was there and basically like it's really hard to explain but pat o'brien kind of was like oh hey ryan tough loss you know basically like you threw a temper tantrum and I ripped you, like a lot of people ripped you for it. And, you know, what do you have to say about that? Like, literally, that was the question coming out of the gate, which to me pretty much signals that this thing was kind of set up because yeah. Harrison had to know it was coming because you just don't bring a kid on there. It was, it was set up because you don't bring somebody on the day after they lose. It just doesn't right. happen. Right. I've, never, I've never seen anybody in that situation, like, be out of the tournament and come back the next day for a TV studio interview. I've never seen that happen before. Exactly. So, so yeah, so that question was put to him and he just kind of, and he, and this is again, at least my opinion and my reaction to it, it was, this was never like a, like a rip on Ryan. Like I thought that the apology was heartfelt. Um, you know, he kind of, he really did look contrite um, and, and embarrassed. He looked embarrassed. He looked really embarrassed. Yeah, he looked embarrassed that, that it had kind of come to this and, um, and that he felt like he had embarrassed the country and, and things like that and let people down and, and that is part of why people made a bigger deal out of it than usual, because people like Pat O'Brien, first of all, although he apparently, according to him, had done tennis tournaments before, isn't around it much and doesn't see this. Sees this as, you know, Olympics, shining moment for America, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the smacking the racket, the spiking the ball, the cracking the frame, the tearing up the turf that apparently happened and had to be repaired by the grounds crew, and that does sort of fly in the face of some sort of what we expect our... Olympians to be after their, you know, polished sob stories about whatever their journey was. So. Right, right. But, uh, but yeah, so, so he apologized, and then uh, Justin Gimmelstab kind of hopped in, and basically, God, what's the right word for what he did? I'm, uh, Justin Gimmelstab basically asked, acted like his PR guy, yeah. like his agent. Um, and obviously, like I said about Gimmelstab before, Gimmelstab is very close friends with a lot of the top Americans, Harrison especially, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of acts like a mentor to him and was just trying to say like was just sort of steering it in this sort of very bizarrely you know let's take the positives from this way it's like well Ryan you know we know that you've done a lot of growing and that everyone knows you're a great person and America loves you like that was his sort of re- right. he was like reassuring Ryan so he was sort of like holding his hand through this tough interview which again this interview didn't really have to happen Right. there was no, no one has ever gone on TV to apologize for something like maybe they have I haven't seen every tournament ever but I have no memory of anything like this ever happening before. So it was just uncomfortable. And it was it was weird. It was weird also because I just didn't understand why that was the medium. If if Harrison wanted to apologize or if his people felt like it was necessary to make a statement or issue yeah. an apology, why would you go onto Bravo and say it? And it's not archived on the NBC website, as far as I can tell. No, it's not. No, I actually, like, because I wanted to write something about it just because it was so striking, the way it happened. So I, like, contacted NBC people and they said, like, we don't have the footage anymore or something. Right. We can't pull it up. Right, so they can't they can't pull it up. It's not on YouTube. 
There's no transcript of the interview. Like nobody was like writing it down because it just happened sua sponte. Like nobody really knew it was coming. So it's like, so you issued this statement but and this apology, but nobody's going to see it. Yeah. Like this was on a work, you know, like it was a work day. Like nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to read about it. Why wouldn't you just do, it's the 21st century. Um, this is the world of Twitter and Facebook. He, Ryan Harrison has an official Facebook page. Why and not Twitter. And a Twitter why don't you just tweet an apology or why don't you just post an apology on your Facebook page and tweet a link to that? Yeah. Um, or why don't you just release a statement uh, and give it to the journalists and say like, you know, whatever, um, or issue, do an exclusive interview with uh, a tennis journalist and have, you know, and, and have it be written up that way. It just for, so it really was puzzling because I didn't understand what the point of it was. Yeah. It was it was bizarre, and it might sound like we're making a lot out of nothing. In the in the general Olympic picture, Ryan Harrison was not a major player, but um, this was just this was bizarre, and we do it was just because it was so out of left field from anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, and it, it was, was just so poorly handled by everybody. But I I don't think Ryan handled himself badly in the TV part of it, just because. Uh, you know, I didn't know what he was supposed to do in that situation. He was contrite. He looked into the camera. He did seem heartfelt. He's a very good talker. He's always has. He's a, does very articulate press. I mean, that was all. He's good at that. We knew. He's, we know he's good at that. So, let's see. On, on, on another point, we've talked about this before with Harrison. I don't think on air though. Mm. Um, do we think that Harrison actually needs to clean up his behavior? Ah, uh, we have talked about this. Um, well, there's the there's the two camps on the Harrison thing, right? Which is that, you know, there's one camp, which is I would I would call it kind of the Gimmelstab camp, because he's gone on record saying this in his you know disagreement with Carrillo uh, that's on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, and Andy Roddick has mentioned this as well, that that thing that makes him so annoying, which is that that fire and that temper and that desire to be the best and wanting it all now. Um, is what will make him a great player. Yeah. And you and you chose your nouns carefully there about what how to describe that sort of, you know, fire and whatever. Right. Like some people, a lot of people like Carrillo in this famous uh, tennis channel moment from the U.S. Open last year, I think, called it, you know, brattiness or whatever. But, but, but Harrison has always in an interview has been very clear about saying he wants to clear it up, that he wants to turn a new page, he wants to, you know, get rid of this and he thinks it's holding him back somehow but he hasn't maybe this massive mea culpa on bravo will change things but to date he hasn't really changed it that much maybe he's dialed down a little bit but it still comes out sometimes and it's not clear that it really affects his tennis i mean he does it when he's already losing matches so i mean that's the thing is that yeah like so again like what it's all about the nouns that you use, right? So when you say fire and passion and intensity, you and can desire. also and desire. You can also call it petulance and uh, entitlement yep. and brattiness, brattiness, immaturity. Like it's all how you want to frame the actual behavior. Yeah. Um. And uh, with Harrison, I guess I would be much more inclined to kind of accept it as being fire and and passion, if those outbursts actually worked like generally speaking kind of the outburst kind of helped Andy Roddick I kind of feel like it helped him let off steam and he would eventually I mean more so in the past than now but I feel like with Harrison sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't which makes me which just negates the behavior which means what's the point 
And uh, and then you have just, you know, examples of, of people. I think that Djokovic is actually a really good example of this, of somebody who does have that fire and that temper. Um, and it can be used negatively to where he was perceived as being a brat and entitled and, and brash and, and all that sort of stuff yeah. that he's been able to channel. And that does take time and that does take age and, you know, and and, uh, and maturity. You know, Harrison doesn't get the benefit of the doubt of like players like a, a Safin who kind of made it entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or Gonzalez. So with him, it just really it does kind of come off poorly right now. And there are and there are players. There are plenty, plenty of players who have unquestionable desire and drive and passion that have no brattiness about them. Person, they could never be perceived as bratty. Like uh, Marion Bartoli comes to mind. Sharapova, or Nadal. Nadal. Right. Nadal has plenty of passion and outward emotion and but it's all positive he's never i've never seen it all crack a racket or anything so yeah i, I just think it's interesting it I was it was an interesting moment I, I, w- I wish that it had been put on youtube by somebody and if anybody out there odds are low about this anybody happens to be saving it for the right moment if you want to upload it we'd appreciate it yeah seriously because it, it, it's a really good talking point it'd be good to use in like pr classes too yeah i mean with harrison i will say that my kind of take on him and his behavior is a bit of a wait and see. So yeah. I, I he, like like uh, Laura Robson. He is young. He is young, and 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 if you want to talk about somebody who can also get really negative on court and have little outbursts, it's just that she is cute and she's adorable and she plays on outer courts and in smaller tournaments. Is Laura, who does have the propensity to you know get really really angry on court. She doesn't break rackets, but you know she's got a mouth on her. She does. Uh, but she, but she's good about volume for the most part. Yes, yes, she'll she'll mutter, she won't yeah. scream. But, um, but if so you're what, sit- what we're saying is, if you're gonna go see Laura Robson, sit in the front row. It's a lot of fun. Sit in the front row in the corners. I assure you, you'll, you'll hear some. I mean, it's funny because it's not like, ugh, it's not violent or anything. It's just she's very witty. It's very self-deprecating. It's very self-deprecating. It's just it's just very like, you're so slow, you're stupid, and whatever. You're so but bad she, at tennis. Why are you so bad at tennis? Yes, a lot that of that. Stuff. In an oddly charming way, because it's a British accent or something. I don't know. Exactly. That makes everything better. If, if Harrison <laughs> was British, this whole thing would be different. So, Well, if, Harris, if Harrison were British, it'd be more Andy Murray-esque with his, like, you know, miserable git, dour Scott, you know, yeah. negative body language, all that storyline. So it's all, I don't know. But, yeah, so I'm inclined to kind of give Ryan a little air a little air on this and if he's still doing it at like 21 years old then there's an issue that makes sense that sounds good so the one sort of last uh we didn't really talk entirely about the William, about the women's doubles just to sort of give all the medalists their due because there is this theory that our belief that all olympic medals are created equal to a degree and that medals i don't think that's necessarily true but they all do count the same on the table so what did we think about venus and serena winning their third gold, and they're going on top of 13 slams together. When I see them winning the doubles at the Olympics, I just can't be I mean, I'm just really happy for Venus. I think that, that, um, and I wrote this for SI, that that I think that she was really the story there um, with respect to their doubles. Obviously, we're going to shower praise on Serena and, um, and her performance at the Olympics as we did. But to kind of be tracking venus um you know since her comeback 
in Miami, which you were at then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being ranked 134 at that point in time and uh, getting her ranking within top 56 by the time the French came. And it was all just to get into the Olympics. And the whole time, too, like, she wasn't like, I want to win, like, a gold medal. I want to do this. I want, I want to play singles. She wasn't really any, really all about that. She was just like, the Olympics means so much to me as an experience, and I want to be there. Yeah. Um, and so for her to be able to do it, um, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I wasn't in Miami. You were in Miami, and we were both in Charleston. Um, and then I think I saw her again when I went to Rome. Mm-hmm. And um, just kind of, I don't know, just tracking her progress and seeing those bad days that came where clearly she wanted to be able to play and compete, but her body wouldn't let her. And then those days where, you know, she upsets Petra Kvitova or Sam Stozer and you're like, well, holy cow. Like, you know, I, I saw her twice this summer at uh, World in Tennis at the Castles. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time she lost five love to Arena Falcone. And it wasn't pretty. And it just it was just sort of like, wow, you know, you're going to the Olympics, but this, you know, will be an absolute, you know, final bow, whatever. And the next time she I forget who she played. It wasn't a name person, but she beat them like five one and looked great and was so up and down. And then she gets to Wimbledon for the Olympics and um, beat Sarah Ronnie very comfortably in the first round. She then plays somebody Wozniak, I think, in the second round and beats her comfortably as well and then has a very tight lost to Kerber, which is very respectable. So I think that what she, and then obviously she won the doubles. Um, I think that what she did was pretty impressive. And if this is her last uh, hurrah, even though she did make noise about playing Rio, so, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's probably ambitious. Uh, I just think it was a pretty cool way for her to go out on top. Yep. And yep. I do think that their doubles, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is so underrated. I mean, they, I think they've won more majors than the Bryans, right? 13? That has to be more than the Bryans. That has to be. I don't know. So, anyway. Yeah. They'd be, they'd be Hall of Famers on doubles alone, that's what I've said before, and stand by. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I, I think I was talking to you about this, about uh, uh, Andy and Laura, when we were talking about, you know, their doubles progress, but all this, I think this applies to Venus and Serena as well, where this wasn't a situation, in both in both cases, it wasn't, if you didn't watch their doubles, you might be inclined to think, okay, obviously Serena carried the team mm-hmm. and Venus kind of just did the bare minimum and yay, you know, because Serena's so good. Blah, blah, blah. And same with Andy and Laura. But if you actually did watch all of their matches, which I, I actually did, um, that wasn't really the case. Like there were matches where Venus was really carrying Serena. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that was just really great to see, to see that, that she really did her part to earn that medal as well, um, that this wasn't a charity case. I guess that's that was what I was a little worried about, is that that that, that was what it was going to feel like, yeah. you know, if they won a gold medal, that it was going to be all Serena and then kind of Venus was along for the ride. But she absolutely earned, you know, her medal. Absolutely. And it wasn't that way at Wimbledon either when they won the doubles there. I saw a few matches from that. I didn't see very much of them in the Olympics, but I saw a few at Wimbledon. And Venus absolutely held her own and more, and she's gotten... Very, she's a very, very good net player in doubles, more yeah. so than in singles, even. So, I think, yeah, I just think it was, it, it's, it's cool for them, and they are uh, American tennis. For we started the episode talking about how Great Britain was doing, um, how great Great Britain was doing, rather, and <laughs> but Americans won three of the five tennis events. So, if Olympic tennis is the best of five, you know, game set match USA. That's right. <laughs> very nice. So very I try. Well. 
So that'll bring it full circle for us. I guess we can close with that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us once again. Um, this was episode 14. We're having some problems at getting episode 12 uploaded. So we have 13 up. So 12 will show up eventually. Um, this is not you know, one of those series where you need to hear everything in chronological order for it to make sense. Um, we'll be back next week. We'll be in one of our favorite places in the world, Mason, Ohio. God, time flies, isn't it? Mason, Ohio already. It's crazy. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll see you from then. We'll be stuffed full of Applebee's and Skyline Chili and our uh, outlooks on the world will be a little bit more Midwestern. Midwestern. So we'll be far more pleasant. Yeah. We won't be as cranky. Like we'll go the, to bed a lot earlier. I don't know, dude. Like, they have night sessions. No, they do, but, like, nothing is open there past, like, 9 o'clock is what I meant. And Applebee's, that's why we're at that's Applebee's. That's true, that's true. <laughs> we'll go to Applebee's. We'll see every other player there at Applebee's. It'll be, you know, Applebee's. tennis family reunion. Yeah, last year, having fajitas next to JJ. Having dr- I was down in beers next to Grigor Dimitrov. Going there and, like, going that's to the okay. semi and seeing, you know, JJ roll after her semi. And then, like, 20 minutes later, oh, yeah, there's Andre Pekovic. He's here, too, because there's nowhere else open. So. Applebee's Mason. You got you gotta love it. Because when you're here, you're family. <laughs> when you get you for Applebee's, or is that like for Olive Garden? That might be Olive Garden. That <laughs> <laughs> is Olive Garden, but you know it might as well. What is Applebee's is eating good in the neighborhood, I believe. Yes, that's right. So we will be eating good in your neighborhood if you happen to live in Mason, which odds are against statistically. <laughs> so we'll just stop there because we're going nowhere good here. Thanks very much once again. Um, We'll see you in four years for the next Olympics and next week for another show. Bye-bye.